We use all sorts of metaphors in life, don't we? Language which um, paints a picture in our mind that means something. It, it carries a meaning that, that we use. And it's, it's, metaphors are incredibly uh, important to us. Uh, one of the abiding metaphors that has been used again and again is the idea of living in the shadow of something. It's a phrase which is used in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and may, maybe one of the ways that we most use it is thinking about the idea of living in the shadow of an event in our lives or a particular experience. Uh, and that event or that experience casts its shadow across the rest of our lives. Um, there have been many conflicts since the Second World War. Uh, but certainly the Second World War is one of those most recent conflicts where a significant number of men and women were involved in direct uh, service. And the events and the experiences for many of them, what they experienced, what they went through, whether it was at overseas or whether it was at home, the events that they went through cast a shadow through the rest of their life, that they could not get away. They were shaped, they were moved by that particular experience. There are global shadows. I think, with, particularly in the past few months, I guess, with all of the concerns uh, about the uh, escalation in production of atomic uh, weapons, I guess we could look back uh, and we could say that the two atomic bombs, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, cast a shadow on humanity. They were events which we live now unquestionably in the shadow of those events. When we, when we hear of escalating um, production of warfare implements, we think about those experiences. We can't get away from it. They have changed the world. There are turning points in the world. That's a world turning point. There are Western society turning points. Um, the shooting of John F. Kennedy, for many, would be a turning point in Western society. What we're going to be looking at this afternoon, I would suggest is one of the global, historical turning points. Something which happened, which, as we'll see, has changed the world. That sounds like a huge claim to make, doesn't it? Why would we possibly say something that happened in ancient Egypt has, has cast a shadow over the rest of human history? For me, this event is that significant. It's that significant in the storyline of the Bible. Um, we've got to understand, we've got to come to terms with it. We've got to realize the significance of it and how what was happening in ancient Egypt affects us today. It shapes us, it causes us to see the world, see our humanity in a dramatically different way. So let's go on a little bit of a journey. 
We're in chapter 12 of Exodus. It's titled at the top of the chapter, the Passover. Uh, But we've got to locate ourselves. We've got to find ourselves in a place. And uh, maybe it's worthwhile a brief kind of recap of where we've got to. Where we are is in ancient Egypt. Ramesses is is where we are placed. Uh, And if you if you enjoy any, if you're anything like me, even remotely as sad as me, and the Discovery Channel or Nat Geo are channels that you kind of instinctively turn to, as I do. Ancient Egypt is a fascinating place. It's, it's just an incredible history, and without a doubt, Egypt itself shaped civilizations from there on. But here we find ourselves. God's people in that situation, the greatest empire that the world had seen, the most influential, the most technically advanced uh, empire that the world had seen to that point, and we are engaging in a storyline where the biggest players in that empire, Pharaoh himself and a guy called Moses, are in dialogue. That's incredible in itself. The Bible does not hold back from saying we, we place this storyline in some of the most significant events and significant people in the whole of history. And so we find ourselves in, in that place. But we also need to understand who they are. They're the people of God. They're the people who entered in as a family and have become a multitude of people, and they carry over them a promise of God that you are my people. I will make you a great nation, and you are going to be blessed. And whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. That's what God said to Abraham way back. And now we find God's people, all of them knowing as individual families where their heritage was, whether they were a Uh, of the line of Simeon, whether they are of the line of Levi, whether they were of the line of uh, Judah, they all know that they are part of that heritage. But that promise looks a million miles away from them now. That promise does not exist in reality. You're going to curse whoever curses us? Well, I think, God, you must have forgotten about that because we are being way cursed now. We are in slavery. We're told to produce uh, building materials, and the building materials that we're told to produce, we are told to produce them with less and less material, but produce the same amount every day. That sounds like a whole load of industries today, doesn't it? Probably some of your work experiences, you've got to do more with less except that probably you would not be physically beaten or potentially killed if you didn't achieve the objective, which is where God's people are. That's where they are. That's the situation. And we can't understand this until we also understand the backdrop of the consciousness of people. We live in Western society right now, and we live in a secular, non-religiously driven society for the best part. 
We don't see the events of, of life. We don't see the course of nature. We don't see the patterns of the seasons. We don't see the good or bad harvests connected to divinity at all. But we're living in a time where that was completely the way in which the world was interpreted. In fact, the gods of the Egyptians or the Egyptians had gods for just about every kind of aspect of their lives. As Ash opened up for us over the past few weeks, we have a, we have a God for the Nile. We have a God for all sorts of different impacts of our lives. We have a God for the weather. We have a God for health. We have all of these. Our lives are governed by the gods, which is why the priestly order in all of those ancient societies was so powerful, so incredibly important, because they mediated between the gods and the people. And that's where the people of God find themselves in slavery. And now we come to this moment where Moses goes into Egypt, as we, we left it on a bit of a cliffhanger last week, I think. Well, let me just read you the last couple of verses, few verses of Exodus 11. Moses goes into Pharaoh and he says this, this is what the Lord says, about a midnight I will go throughout Egypt, every firstborn son of Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at the handmill, and the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than has ever been or ever will be. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark or any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. That is like a major cliffhanger moment, isn't it? In cinematography, you could imagine that being captured with a great actor in an amazing way. You can see the fury in his face. And, and we have got to interpret this fury in the light of what has gone before and the clear understanding that this is not a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses and Pharaoh are representatives. They are spokespeople for the question which God or gods is true and supreme. The God of Moses or the multiple gods of Pharaoh? That is the key question. That's the question that is at stake. Pharaoh becomes the spokesperson. Egypt becomes the representation of those who say, we trust all of these gods and we disdain your God. And Moses says, I am hot with anger. Why is Moses angry? I think part of the reason is this. He's kind of thinking, it didn't need to come to this. We read in short paragraphs and slightly longer paragraphs all of the plagues that have gone before. Hail, blood, frogs, 
flies, locusts, hail. What we don't capture is that all of that was going on one after the other over a fairly significant period of time. For locusts to have an impact, you have to go through a season of locusts taking your crops and being devastated. It wasn't a sort of seven-day kind of time. It was an onslaught. It was again and again and again and again. And Pharaoh is saying, no, no, even though the statement that you are making is in direct contradiction that the God that we worship, the God of the Nile, the God of the sky, the God of the harvest, even though your God is coming in and standing against us and saying, I can stand greater than you, I'm going to ignore it. And Moses leaves angry. Why did you not listen? Why did you not hear what was being said? Why did he not hear? Because God has said, I'll harden his heart. What does that mean? I think it means something like this. I will reveal the reality of Pharaoh in the heart of Pharaoh as he truly is. I will not soften him. I will not stay him. I will not hold back his hardness. I will allow all of the reality of human nature against me to be seen in that man. And he will stand as a representative on behalf of all of Egypt of what it means, what the implications are to stand against the God who lives. It is an incredible story. Western 21st century minds look at this and we think, I don't, I don't know how to deal with this. When Moses goes in and says it's firstborn who are going to be killed, that sounds just too harsh to me. Unless we put our Egyptian sandals on and go back thousands of years and place ourselves in that moment, in that experience, we will not understand that the dy- dynamic and the language is simply this question, which God is true? Which God is true? That's the question. Now, in a sense, that same question lives for us today. Which God is true? Which God is Is there a God? I, I think we have, we'll come to that in a few minutes. But Moses goes in and he says, I want you to understand, Pharaoh, there is going to be such a distinction. I think it's, it's, it's just evocative language that he uses. Among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. (laughs) You're going to be in turmoil. There are going to be people dying. And amongst the Israelites, there is going to be peace. That's what Moses says. Now we come to our reading. Because now we place ourselves with our Israelite sandals on and we say, what's going to happen? God's going to visit and He said He is going to kill all of the firstborn. 
How do we know it's not going to be us as well? How do we know we may not die? How, how does God know where we are so that we can be safe? If God is going to come in and there is going to be that kind of catastrophic judgment, how can I raise my hand up and say, please don't slay me because I trust in you? What is the mechanism for that? And so we come to this picture. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, I want you to do this. I want you to go to all of the people, uh, and on the first month, the first month of the year, I want you to tell them to do this, to take a, a one-year-old sheep or goat. It's got to be pure. And then at twilight, gather together in families. Let, let's imagine ourselves in that moment, shall we? It, it's, it's become that day. That moment where we've been told to be ready. What does being ready look like? Let's, let, let's become children. Let's observe it as children, shall we? Dad gets ready like he's off to work. He gets his cloak wrapped around him. And he straps himself up as though he's about to leave the place. Mom, it seems as packed things, ready. And then as the sun begins to set, dad takes one of those lambs and he slays it. And then he does a really, really strange thing as we observe it. But it's what he's been told to do by Moses and by God. He takes some of the blood and he marks the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of the house that we're going to eat this in. He's never done that before. But it seems, it seems as though suddenly, when I go out into the street and I look up and down, all of the different houses up and down the street that I'm in, they're marked with blood on the, on the doorposts. And there's a, there's a kind of, there's an eerie kind of calm and silence that is going on as I walk around, and, and my friend's house is marked by blood. And then we go into the house. Our family, we're a pretty small family, so next door has, has come in as well. And we've taken the food and the, the, the lamb, and, and then we roast the whole of the lamb. And normally roasting a lamb is something that is a really special special event. And what we definitely don't do is eat it all in one go. But we eat it, all of it, that night, because that's what God has told us to do. That's what happened. It's really, it's really fairly simple when we look at it as a set of actions. But it takes considerable faith to believe that in the face of death, what we are supposed to do is take blood, mark the door, then eat the animal, roast it over a fire and eat it. That does not seem 
like a dramatic thing to do. I've got to believe that doing this is good enough. And then there is a strange wailing that starts to come from parts of the city. And news starts to pass from one home to the next. As the story unfolds, that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men have died. Firstborn from families have died. Young men in homes, older men who are fathers, Pharaoh's son. I think that's an incredible reference, isn't it? Pharaoh's son dies. He probably had some kind of knowledge of the history and maybe some understanding of how these people ended up in Egypt. And he dies. And in that moment, we stand right up in the middle of the storyline, and we create, metaphorically, a post which casts a shadow across the rest of the Bible. What are we to do? What, what are those steps? Let's, let's just say it very simply, what we're supposed to do. How do we, how do we live? Well, we take purity and innocence, and we kill it. We t- Exodus chapter, five, chapter 12 and verse 5, the animal you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. You take something that is innocent and pure uh, and perfect, has all of the potential for the future, and you kill it. And by killing that and taking the blood, you don't die. You live because that dies. Because the blood that you take from that is now marked on your doorposts. You mark yourself with that blood. And then you take and you eat it. That same night, they eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you are to burn it. That That lamb, which was a few hours earlier, we we were in Lake District a few weeks ago. Oh man, little lambs are really cute. Uh, They really are kind of, there is something, and and then, you know, we're reading storybooks now which are predominantly pictures rather than words, and little lambs are kind of an emblem of, cuteness 
and innocence. I don't think that that's Western culture that's done that. I think that there is something in humanity worldwide that looks at little lambs in that way. Purity, innocence, and you kill it, and because that dies, and because that blood is shed, and marked on your doors, and because you partake of it, so that there is none of it left, and it becomes part of you by you eating it, you live. And what happens as a result of that? What happens as a result of that faithfulness? God turns their sorrow and mourning to joy and riches. That's the, that's the transformation that takes place. Later on, we read from verse 35 to 36, the, the Israelites did as… Sorry, let's go a little bit earlier. During the night, verse 31, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses. Can you imagine it? <laughs> All of this wailing is going on in Ramesses. There is, there is crying, weeping, wailing, and there is this calm kind of strange peace that is in the Israelite encampment or the Israelite area of living. And in the night, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron, and he says to them, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. I just… The audacity is astounding, isn't it? But I think what he is saying is, in that moment, I understand that your God is supreme. I need a blessing. I need a blessing because my son has died. I am surrounded by death, and you are unscathed. You are untouched. I believe in, in this moment, I think, Pharaoh says, I want your God to bless me. There is something, Moses, about you. You stand in a place which becomes the spokesperson, the, the, the ability to, in a priestly way, bring about the blessing of God or the curse of God, and he says, go, worship your God, and bless me. And the Egyptians use, uh, um, the Egyptians urged the people to hurry, leave the country, for otherwise they said, we'll all die. I guess that was in their minds. If the firstborn has died, are we going to go down the kind of, down the generations or the, whatever it is, the, the order of birth? Are they all going to die? So the people took their dough before the yeast was added. It's just a great picture, that, isn't it? That is like making a run for it, isn't it? You've packed up your dough for the next day's bread, but you haven't put your yeast in it, and you pack that up on your bag, and you go. We're just going. We're leaving. And carried it on their shoulders and kneading troughs, troughs wrapped in cloth. And the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. 
The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. It is such a remarkable transformation, but the turning point is a recognition that the final victory is this God, the God of Moses and Aaron, and not the God of the Egyptians. That is the key. That's the key to this moment. So the Egyptians are saying, take it because your God is the powerful, true, living God. And they leave. And God, in a moment, turns their, their horrific, oppressed, slavery-ridden experience to freedom and riches. What happened in the 18th century, which was significantly driven by evangelical Christians in the turning over of the uh, practice of slavery, transportation and sale of slavery, and then the, later on the right to own slaves, was a tremendous step forward in our understanding of the true nature of humanity. Slavery is a terrible thing, but you know it took years and years to turn over that slavery. And God turned over this slavery of 400 years in one night. And He turned those slaves, all of them, in one night to free, rich people. That's remarkable. That's the story. That's what's encaptured here. And we say, that's amazing. Isn't God great? Isn't that incredible? Is that it? Of course not. This moment, I've said it casts a shadow, but it casts a shadow to something even bigger. It casts, and you will, you will if you've been around the Christian story for any time, you will already be there, I'm sure. But maybe if this is new to you, this is incredibly important. The shadow that this casts forward is the shadow to Jesus. That's where it points to. You know, this, a sundial, it casts a shadow in only one direction, doesn't it? You can't, you, you can't cast a shadow in multiple directions. It has got to point in one place. And God uses this moment to point a shadow in one place to Jesus. And the beginning of John, we have this moment where John says, when he sees Jesus, he says, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the Lamb. If you, if you understand that you've been walking along this shadow of this moment, you'll remember the royal blood series that we did through Exodus where 
What were we told to do again and again? Take the meat, roast it with the internal organs, do it in this particular way because it's a reflection on this moment. Because that's what sacrifice looks like. Sacrifice looks like the thing that is the substitute being totally consumed. Gone. Finished. Obliterated. And John says, with hundreds more years now from this moment of God's people carrying out this practice where lambs are an incredibly important feature of any sacrificial system, and John says, there's the lamb. There's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. But what does that mean? You can point to Jesus. But what does faith in Jesus look like? You know, the Egyptians have spent the past however long enduring all sorts of plagues, but it takes the death of the firstborn for them to actually come to their senses and see God's people liberated. What does trusting and having faith in Jesus as the Lamb of God look like? From what John said about Jesus, we go on a journey where later on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus turns to His disciples and He says, well, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples, saying, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said. The disciples had to move from having Jesus pointed to them to saying, I am going to now take part. I am going to consume this Jesus just like these Passover people all the way back there. They had, to, they had to make that substitutionary sacrifice. They had to make that lamb part of them. And they did it by wiping the blood on the doorposts and eating the whole of the lamb. And Jesus says, you can look at me and you can decide, well, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but that won't do a thing for you until you say, and I take that lamb as my substitution, as my substitution. So, I'm going to take that blood, and I'm going to mark the metaphorical doorposts of my heart and my life with that blood. I'm going to take that body, and I'm going to eat that body, which is why when when this was first talked about, and the disciples first shared this. It, Jesus shared this. It was outrage. How can we become cannibals? <laughs> and Jesus was saying it's a picture, it's a metaphor, it's a way of saying, I do this because that's what's changed in my heart. I trust in you. It's a bit like saying, I believe. I'm going to trust, I'm going to have faith. But taking this lamb, 
slaughtering it, eating it at night, painting the doorpost and the lentil with blood will cause us not to die. Exactly the same thing for us. We say, I believe that by trusting in this Jesus, metaphorically painting His blood onto my life, taking metaphorically His body and eating it, and marking that belief as we do as we share communion. It's me saying, I believe that that life will save me in the same way as these Israel, Israel, children of Israel. How does that work? Save us from what? It's going to save us from the same God of judgment. That is really stark, isn't it? The same God of judgment. The God who judged the Israelites because they trusted their gods more than the God who speaks says, trust in me rather than the gods that you are trusting in instead of me. But I will judge you. I will hold you to account. That, that is the stark nature of this good news, which doesn't sound like good news, does it? Until we understand the reality that I am, I am way more like an Egyptian. I am way more like an Egyptian in my heart. I am way more inclined to not believe in the God of the Bible. I am way more inclined to trust in all of my own mechanisms and devices and the metaphoric gods that I create and the things that I trust in and the things that I put my security in and the way in which I shape my life to be safe and not trust that God. I'll trust my life that I shape and create way more than that God. That, that's safer. I've created that. And I need, to, I need to bow down and I, say, I need to say I need to trust in that Jesus I need to trust in that Jesus because I'm going to be accountable for not trusting in that Jesus. Living in the shadow, this shadow that Passover casts to the cross and the shadow that the cross casts through the rest of human history to today. Living in a shadow carries a degree of awfulness, doesn't it, in terms of the event. And the good news of the gospel is, is awful. It is awful. It's good news and it's awful. Because that event that secures my hope was an awful event. It was an awful, it was a horrific, terrible event. But it is beautiful. I can hold on to that because that's how much I am loved. That's how much God is willing to do for me and for you. I think sometimes in our culture we've made We've, we've lost the magnitude, the awfulness 
of the good gospel message. We've made it light and fluffy and cutesy, and we've made it a kind of Christian popular psychological get-right-fix And we've lost sight that Jesus is the Lamb of God who is slaughtered so that we might live. What do I need to do? I need to have faith. That's all. I need to have faith in that. 